Let us pray. Gracious God, we have come to be with you and to sit under your word. So we pray that you would take my words and my thoughts, you would take all of our thoughts, you would take even the reading of Holy Scripture and transform these so that each and every one of us hears individually and collectively exactly what you would have for them and us today. We pray this on the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Scott. The old lesson for today is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says, rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring fountains of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now that King Balak and Moab devised what Batan, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened with Shidom and Gil Gilgog, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be blessed or pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of the souls? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and, and to walk humbly with your God? The New Testament lesson is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Bless the reading of God's word. Thank you, Gary. I, I'm so glad that you were assigned that Old Testament reading as a oh, the Ohio State graduate. You got what you deserved with those names. <laughs> so we're in the season of Epiphany, and last week um, I mentioned, or I shared at least, uh, four questions that I have. Um, I just wanted you to let you know what I'm thinking. Um, as we look at sort of where the church is today, perhaps where our church is, and what seems to be just this crying isolation and alienation and need in the world. I put up for my students um, a measure of uh, satisfaction and dissatisfaction. And it probably wouldn't surprise you, but when people are polled about their level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with life, um, this started in 1980, there's a very steady increase. I mean, it's astronomical that moves towards dissatisfaction. And I asked them, students, freshmen, does this seem to fit? And they said, yes. And I said, you know, when I was your age, it happened, but it was unusual that I knew someone my age who was suicidal. What's that like for you? It's on every floor in every dorm. So there's something going awry. And so I had uh, four questions, two questions sort of come up this week in the reading. The first question was, do we have the eyes to see what God is doing new? Over and despite our own tendencies to either avoid what that new is, or to bunker down and stay in the safe ground of our own experience, tradition, and so on. In other words, are we open to surprise? That's a question I, I sort of wonder. Uh, the second question is, do we want our mission and ministry to empower us, that that's the most important thing, or do we want it to spread the gospel? Do we want it to reach out to other people? Well, believe it or not, at least in my strange mind, that has everything to do with the news that we heard this morning that Microsoft is going to invest at least $10 billion, not million, $10 billion, into chat GPT of chat GPT? I was trained in chat GPT this week because what chat GPT allows a person to do is basically type in certain assignments, certain college assignments, and the computer program writes the assignment for you. And there's been some press lately that, for example, 
ChatGPT was able to pass the business final in a particular business class. And I had to say to myself, I wonder about that class. But um, one of the things I was assigned to do this week is to put my own assignments into ChatGPT and to see sort of what came up. And I'm proud to say that my assignments broke ChatGPT. Smoke came out of the computer. ChatGPT had no idea what ancient Yehud was or any of the things that my students work on, at least. Um, but my questions have something to do with this artificial intelligence. And so let me get to that by asking another question, just for you to think about. Um, and this is not a gotcha question. It's just really just let's think about this for a moment. Um, how have you in your life sort of figured out what faith and or what church should be? I mean, I think sometimes we have this sense that we don't think it's this, but where's that source of information that you have drawn on to figure out what it should be? Does that make sense? Now, the interesting thing about chat GPT is that it actually isn't very smart. It's not really artificial intelligence. It is predictive. So it has a huge database that has studied sort of the way in a bell-shaped curve most people think and talk and, and so on. And then the algorithm works by, as soon as you start putting together different words with different associations, predicting based on what is commonly held to be the case, what should come next. So in some ways, what ChatGPT is doing is protecting us from epiphany. There's no surprise. It's sort of that living out of the gospel song, give me that old-time religion. It's spewing out what we already know. Now, you're going to laugh at this, I think, but here's my prediction. Because things are moving in such a digital and isolated way, I think fairly soon we're going to see chat GPT sermons and chat GPT pastors. I really do. Because so much of religiosity in common experience is avoiding surprise and sticking what is commonly held to be true. And then really being upset with people who don't agree with that who are also people of faith. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Okay. We're in a tradition where we sort of have all agreed with Martin Luther that the truth of Scripture comes first. After that is accepted, then we sort of judge what other people think and what tradition has brought us this far. Now, when we say that, we don't think that determining what Scripture says is simple or straightforward. We actually think it's really, really difficult. And that's one reason why we spend a lot of money training our pastors even in the original languages. We don't want them to chat GPT a commentary, for example, or another sermon. Because we want that epiphany, and we believe that epiphany comes from Scripture. The, the problem is, well, Alan Wolf, in his book, The Transformation of American Religion, How We Actually Live Our Faith, summarizes it this way. If we examine how Americans practice their faith in daily life, we'll find, in his words, domesticated, malleable faiths, more attuned to surrounding culture than the original tenets, read this Bible, of the respective denominations. He says, far from living differently, the faithful in the United States live remarkably like everyone else. I had a friend who was a church historian several years ago, and he just asked me one day, what do you think is going to happen with the church in our lifetime? And, you know, I said something, and I'm not sure he was listening, because the next thing he said was, you know, it always goes the way of culture. And so a church like ours has its expression and foundation in the voluntary societies of another day, like the Lions Club. Life Center has its foundations in a more entertainment, big arena, cultural expression. For those students that I see as freshmen, it's their phone. The church always goes the way of culture, my friend said. Wolf said theologians um, used to see Christ's message as potentially transforming culture. But in the United States, culture has transformed Christ as well as all other religions found on these shores. In every aspect of religious life, American faith has met American culture, and in Wolf's words, American culture has triumphed. So no epiphany. Continuity. I need a Jesus to fit my set of values. Now, I'm a little bit embarrassed because outside my office, at least at Gonzaga, there's a picture of Jesus riding a bicycle, so I need to rethink that a little bit. But is Wolf on to something? What I want to suggest from our scripture readings is that 
just like last week, we've been here before. Within the biblical text, it wasn't God who told the Israelites, you shall have a king. It was the people who said, and listen to this language, we want a king like all the other nations. When David wants to build a temple, because that's just what you do in the ancient world for all so many different reasons that we don't need to go into right now, God appears to Nathan in a dream to tell David, no. And then Solomon builds a temple. There is this evidence within the scriptural text itself of exactly what Wolf describes in our culture of people taking what is an epiphany and trying to fit it into their own set of expectations and almost always in the end, whatever high language might be there, it leaves them in control. And somehow it leaves them being served by God, seeking God for blessing rather than for relationship. So with Solomon, when he built the temple and all of that barbecue, the world's largest barbecue, at least for Israel, Solomon received fame and power and peace and prosperity. And all it cost was slavery and exploitation and decadence. And right after he died, the tribe split apart and created two nations and never came back together again. We've been here before. It's pretty clear in the prophets what the voice of God felt about that whole temple sacrifice complex. In Amos, I, God says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Stop singing to me. You're singing for yourselves. I'm not going to listen to your melodies. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's always the heart, biblically, of what God cares about, right relationship, the value of relationship between people. And somehow... We have this knack of moving in a different direction and thinking when we move in that direction that we're actually doing that very first thing. Think about this in terms of the prophet Isaiah. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in this. 
the blood of bulls or lamb or goats, when you come to appear before me, who the heck is asking this of you? Well, probably someone like this, right? But God says, you're not doing this for me. And then, bringing offerings accomplishes nothing. And I can't endure what you're doing. In fact, when you stretch out your hands this way and you pray to me, I'm going to hide. I'm not going to listen. If you want to change, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And then our passage today from Micah. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And that's the background, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount. Barbara Brown Taylor says that these words of Jesus, the Beatitudes, do not tell us what to do. They tell us who we are. And more importantly, they tell us who Jesus is. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who can barely breathe. Who are gasping for air. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They were all red today. Now, when Solomon built the temple, he built the temple so that he would not be poor in spirit. When Solomon built the temple, he built the temple so that he wouldn't have to mourn. When Solomon built the temple, he built the temple to prove to the world that he was anything but meek. And to have this hit home, let's think of ourselves. Let's first think of our church. When you tell people about our beloved church, you say, you know, there's one thing I want to tell you about Manitoba Presbyterian Church. We're really meek. We don't compare to these other churches. We don't even try. You say, one of the things that I have come to know about Manitoba Presbyterian Church is that it's okay to mourn. We don't come into church and hide behind a mask. You know the great thing about Manitoba Presbyterian Church? Is that a lot of us are really just struggling to breathe. You know why that's great? 
because Christ is with us? Or do we describe our church like a temple? Well, compared to this church, we got this. You should see this. You should listen to that. They're two very different things. The the generation that's not here, they're looking for the first. And they don't believe the second. Or at least, it's not that great. But they're looking for the first. And rather than marketing, that first is just Jesus. That first is just the heart of God. Cynthia Borgul says on her work on the Sermon on the Mount, when we mourn, we are in a state of freefall. Our heart reaching out towards what we have seemingly lost. And we cannot stop loving. So to mourn, by definition, is to live between two realms. Vulnerability. And flow. Mourning is indeed a brutal form of emptiness. But in this emptiness, if we remain open, epiphany, we discover that a mysterious something does indeed eventually, not automatically, not predictably, eventually and surprisingly reach back to comfort us. The tendrils of our grief trailing out into the unknown become intertwined with a greater love that holds everything together. And so to mourn is to touch directly the substance of divine compassion. It is to be in the holiest spaces, in the holiest times. It's to be in the very position that Jesus defines blessing, but the world in which we live does not. And that's not only what that younger generation is desperately looking for. I think it's what we are too. She ends by saying, Mercy 
is not something God has and gives so much of who God is.